Hello all you shark lovers and shark haters. Shark haters, your mind's about to be changed. You're about to join the shark lover side with me and all the rest of us. So join the Elasmites. It's the only way. And the only way is with me, your host, Sam McNeely, bringing you wonderful shark information straight to your beautiful, lovely ears that I get to speak. Well, actually, I get to provide a platform for other people to speak into your ears. So, Anyways, my name's Sam McNeely. I'm the host of the Elasmos podcast. Welcome. We've got a great episode today, but before we get to it, I've got a few things to talk about real quick. First of all, I want to thank those of you that have listened to the past episodes. They're fantastic, and I highly recommend that you do so if you haven't already, because there's not only great information, but we've also got some great promotional ideas in there that you should find out about, especially if you love free things, which I'm a month out of college, and I already miss the free stuff. So don't take it for granted, because I sure did. And I want to give a big shout out to all those Patreon donors who are donating to help support this podcast. I'm working a full-time job on top of this and doing this when I get home from work. And though I love it, it's very hard work and it's a lot to do. So all your support is much appreciated and does not go unnoticed. I promise you. And if you're looking to donate, you can go to patreon.com slash elasmospod and find our Patreon page there. And we're working on some great ideas to provide extra content for those Patreon donors. So don't forget to give. Again, you can find it at patreon.com slash elasmospod. And also don't forget to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And then send that rating to elasmospod at gmail.com so that you can be entered into a drawing to win a prize from episode one's guests. And that is a great prize. It might be a little artsy, which who doesn't love good art? Come on. And if you've already sent in your review, but you didn't win, then you can share this podcast on social media, tagging Pod, and get two entries into the drawing. And people that are rating and reviewing for the first time this week can also do that and get two additional entries into the drawing for a total of three entries. Three. Wow. So remember, rate, review, share on social media, and email me at elasmospod at gmail.com. And you can find the Elasmos Podcast on Instagram and Twitter at elasmospod. You can find our Facebook page, The Elasmos Podcast, A Shark's Universe, on Facebook. And you can find our website, elasmospod.com, online. And a big thanks to Paul McNeely for setting that up. And if you have any stories about adventuring into the marine world, like diving or snorkeling or things you've seen or something like that, especially if they have shark skates, rays, or sawfishes in them, then please send them my way if you want them to be shared on our first listeners episode. You can email them to me again at elasmospod at gmail.com, and hopefully they'll make it on to the first listener's episode. Okay, now on to this week's guest. So this intro is going to be a bit short because we talk a lot about his background in the episode, so I don't want to spoil anything. But this week, we have a legend. He's based out in California where he's a professor of marine biology at CSU Long Beach, heading up the Shark Lab. We had a good conversation, but it was 7 in the morning his time. Yeah, so... That was my fault. I screwed up big time and thought that the East Coast was three hours behind the West Coast when I scheduled our meeting. Turns out that's not how it works. But that's just how passionate he is because even at the butt crack of dawn, he talked with me about stingray batteries, climate change's effects on stingray movement, stingray Shangri-La, hammerhead heaven, a shark Fitbit and treadmill, the truth about failure, suntanning sharks, and what we've all finally been waiting for. Finally optimistic environmentalism. I hope you enjoy my conversation with world-renowned researcher, Dr. Chris Lowe. This is episode four. 
Thank you so, so much for meeting with me this morning. I'm so sorry that I messed up the timing of the meeting, but I can't believe I'm already getting ready to talk to one of the world's most famous shark researchers. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not, I'm not sure that's really true, <laughs> but um, I'm always happy to talk about sharks to people that are interested in listening. So, Awesome. Then you're in the right place. All right. So I'll love some softballs at you. I just want to get an idea of your background. So where are you from? Yeah. So I... Grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, my mom's family had lived on the vineyard for a long time. They were commercial fishermen and whalers before them. You know, my dad was a carpenter. I come from a blue-collar family that, you know, basically helped keep the island running for all those years. And I grew up fishing and swimming and diving in the waters around Martha's Vineyard Cape Cod. So thanks to the Zoom world, we can now hide our bedrooms that are messy as hell and put a different background like sitting on the beach or floating high in the sky. But regardless, you can make your backgrounds different and he had a big great white in the background and I've heard Cape Cod is just so well known for their great white sharks and so I just had to ask him if he was used to seeing great whites around that area when he was growing up. No, no, actually not at all. Oh. So that that's the remarkable thing. Growing up, you know, it was rare to hear about white sharks uh, off the vineyard. Very rare. And the other thing is, I my entire time growing up, I never saw a gray seal. I didn't know what a seal looked like. Wow. So all of that is the sliding baseline, right? But sliding in the other way. So, um, you know, people always talk about things disappearing. Well, what people don't talk about is the recovery of many animals. And that's a classic example. Mm, yeah. And it's crazy that you've been able to see the seal population explode in your lifetime since the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972 really wasn't that long ago. Exactly. And that's the part that I don't think a lot of people really pay much attention to. The fact that some conservation efforts have been remarkably successful. Yeah, and it's a great example of successful conservation and sets a great precedent for how we can remain hopeful for future conservation projects. Absolutely. So how did you get interested in science in the first place? Uh, you know, uh, because I was on and around the water all the time as a kid uh, and I loved to fish, I got interested in learning about the things that I caught. And, you know, I, I, one day I caught a dogfish. I didn't know what it was. It made me go to the library. I wasn't a good student. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I found a book on, on sharks and I started to look up what it was and then I was completely fascinated. So that, that was kind of a, a changer for me, right? It got me from being just a, you know, wild kid who loved being outside and doing things like that to, you know, maybe, maybe there's a career in this. So when I thought, you know, Hey, I think I want to go to college and I think I want to be a marine biologist. My parents were like, okay, sure. Whatever. You sure. You don't <laughs> want to be a carpenter or a commercial fisherman. Um, you know, it was, it, you know, it was something that I don't think a lot of people expected, but, you know, I was never discouraged from doing it. They just didn't really, I don't think, fully understand why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was outside of the norm of what your family was used to. I mean, it sounds like fishing ran in your family. Well, it, was not, it wasn't just that. It was just, you know, college wasn't in the, on the radar for any in my family, you know. Mm. So, so being the first to ever go to college in my family... And, you know, that was uh, something in and of itself. I didn't have anybody to guide me through that process. I just had to kind of fumble my way through it, which which was fine. It was quite the adventure. But 
Um, you know, I, I didn't have somebody say, okay, this is what college is going to be like, and this is why it's going to be beneficial for you. I just kind of knew what I wanted to do. And that was the path that I heard that you had to take to get there. Mm-hmm. And where did you end up going to college? So I got my bachelor's degree in marine biology at Barrington College. It was a small liberal arts school in Rhode Island. And um, the year I graduated, the school folded up. It went bankrupt. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. So then after that, I got a job at a field station that had a marine lab in Bourne, Massachusetts, but also had one in Belize. Whoa. So uh, I was kind of bouncing back and forth between Belize, where I helped them build build some field stations and, and, and teach some marine science classes. And then also on the Cape, where I worked as a biological collector, and then also teaching marine biology to high school and college students. So um, that was kind of my start. And that was where I met my who would become my master's advisor, Don Nelson, was on the Cape. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so you went out west to California to do your master's? I got my master's at Cal State Long Beach with Don Nelson. So I had met him on the Cape, and he was actually working with a researcher from Woods Hole who was trying to track horseshoe crabs using acoustic telemetry. So I had read all his papers. I was very interested in shark behavior. He was well-known shark behaviorist. So it was kind of coincidence that you know, I got to bump into him, but then I offered to help. So I would help him track horseshoe crabs all, all night. And then during the day, I would go do my job. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it, it, it was awesome because I, that was where I got to, I was introduced to the technology hmm. that, that the lab uses so much. And, and that was in the early days. That was back when we built our own transmitters and, and we're developing our own technology. And then, um, you know, that was kind of the start of my path using telemetry as a tool. Oh, telemetry. Maybe someday I'll understand what you mean. So telemetry is just the collection of measurements or other data at remote points and the automatic transmission of that data to receiving equipment. So for example, sharks are often tagged with acoustic telemetry tags, and those collect data all along the way as the shark's moving, about how deep the shark dives, how fast it's swimming, what the water temperatures are, what the salinity is, and then when that shark gets in a certain distance of a receiver, that data can then be transmitted to that receiver and then be picked up by the researchers. So telemetry is essentially just real-time data collection. And in Greek, tele means remote and metron means measure. So it's literally remote measurements if you're fluent in Greek. I'm not, so who knows. And what was your master's work focused on? So I studied the... Um predatory and defensive behavior of the Pacific electric ray. No way. That's so cool. Yeah. So we were the first to measure the electric discharge of an electric ray underwater. So we, we basically took a, an old storage oscilloscope, a small and battery powered. And we built an underwater housing for it. And then we would go diving and find these rays while they slept during the day. And then we could measure their electric discharge. So we were the first to ever do that and then videotape their behavior when they're attacking prey and how they discharge. So that was all part of my master's degree. That's so interesting. I didn't know there was an electric ray. And so is the electricity discharged through their barb? No, no, no. So they actually have muscles, modified branchial muscles in their pectoral fins hmm. that are the actual electric organ. And they're as close to a biological battery as you can get. 
Weird. So basically, you have a bunch of cells stacked on top of each other that are all heavily innervated, and then they can massively discharge all those cells at the same time. That's nuts. And as a result, produce 50 volts at the source, which in salt water, that's a lot of amps. So, so basically, by you know neural control, they can cause all those cells to depolarize simultaneously. And that's what creates this massive electric voltage. And it's so strong that if you were to get it across your head or your chest, it could put your heart into fibrillation. Holy crap. That's unbelievable. Yeah, they're pretty amazing animals. So are they pretty common animals along the West Coast? They are. They are, especially in the fall. They come inshore. That's the season we think they're breeding. Um, they'll rest and bury in the sand during the day and ambush prey. And at night, they're up in the water column. And they're almost neutrally buoyant, which is pretty cool. So they kind of hover. You know, they're almost, they look like Starship Enterprise at night. You know, <laughs> they're kind of cruising around looking for fish in the rocks. And they'll get right over them and they'll discharge and they'll stun the fish and slurp them up. That's so fascinating. See, I guess since I'm on the East Coast, I guess that's why I haven't heard of the electric ray. So the sister taxa is, is on the, in the Atlantic. It's the Atlantic torpedo ray. Oh. And it gets as big as the Pacific electric ray and, you know, basically share pretty much all the same characteristics. Man, that just blows my mind. So do you know if their electric organs or muscles evolved independently after they diverged evolutionarily? Oh, no. They're, those two species are fairly closely related. Oh, okay. So it's Torpedo nobliana and we have Torpedo californica. Um, fairly closely related. Um, you know, they're probably, um, you know, I, I'm not sure anybody's really done any of the evolutionary genetics on that group, but they're similar in morphology. They're similar in size. They're similar in their ecology. They just occur in different oceans and they're temperate, you know, so they're basically found in a little bit cooler climates, you know, so. That's so fascinating. I mean, before this, I didn't even know electric rays were a thing and now you've taught me so much. That's so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a very fascinating group, how, you know, how the electric rays evolved. And of course, you know, skates have electric organs as well, but they're weak electric organs. Oh. So it's interesting to see this theme played out through these chondrichthians. Yeah, really. You know, some of them possess these bizarre, you know, electric capabilities. And of course, they're all electrosensitive, right? So they can mm -hmm. detect weak electric fields with their ampullae. And that was part of my research. How How could this you know, very, very sensitive sensory organ, like an electric organ, how can it handle this massive discharge that the animal produces? And that's still kind of a mystery um, because when they discharge, they're using their electroceptors to locate their prey. Mm -hmm. And because their mouth is located on the bottom part of their disc, their eyes are on the top. So if they're over top of their prey, how would they know where it is? So basically, you know, they have a ring of ampullae that surround the electric organ and then a ring of ampullae around the mouth and the nose. Hmm. So think of those like gun sights, right? So they get over the prey, they're using their ampullae of Lorenzini to, to orient the prey and then they discharge. So imagine you're trying to pull out five nanovolts and you're producing a 50 volt charge that would completely wash out, right? You'd be swamping that signal out completely. So whether they're out of phase with each other, um, or they temporarily, you know, think of it like, you know, you, you, you throw in a flashbang and you, you can't see or hear anything for a few seconds and then they fumble around. We have no idea how that works. 
Oh, that was a lot of good information. Okay, so let's debrief. So chondrichthians are a group of fish that have cartilage instead of bone. So they're more flexible, but they still have a similar structure to other fish. And this includes my lovely elasmobranchs, sharks, skates, rays, and sawfishes, but it also includes chimeras, which are basically like prehistoric looking sharks. Okay, now on to the amazing ampullae of Lorenzini. So these are electric sensing organs that look like dots on the head of the sharks and rays. And these little dots on their heads can detect minute electrical pulses that every animal gives off, especially in the water. So they're highly sensitive to these electrical pulses. And that's the organ that a lot of sharks use to find their prey. Because a lot of times sharks will close their eyes with a protective lens right before they bite. And these electrical pulses can really detect where a fish moves to the finest detail to help that shark grab its prey. And they're called the ampullae of Lorenzini because they were first described in 1678 by Stefano Lorenzini. And ampullae in Latin means small bottle or vial. And inside the head, each dot of the organ looks like a little bottle or a vial. So, that's where you get the name, ampullae of Lorenzini. Now, you are a shark scientist. Go forth and multiply. That's what God meant by that, right? So there are some rays that can use an electric discharge to stun their prey, but are there any sharks that can do this? None that we know that produce an electric discharge, right? So it's called it's referred to as an electric organ discharge, an EOD. So skates have it. They have a, a series of these cells in their tail that are all lined up in an opposite direction. And those EODs that they produce are much, much lower in voltage. It's believed that they use those for communication. So Whoa. it's well within the range that their electric receptors can detect. So the thought is that, you know, males and females might actually use that to communicate. Dang, that's wild. Is your lab doing any research on that? No, no. But there's some research that was done probably about 20, 25 years ago. And I haven't heard of anybody picking that up and doing more work with that. So it's still kind of an interesting field. That's so interesting to me. I love thinking about fish behavior and fish communication because a lot of people think about when they think about a fish, they think, oh, that's just a stupid little animal. But there's so much more that we don't know. Like they have so many different behaviors and they have to communicate in some way because they have to mate. Yep. Yep. And in your lab, you do a lot of work with a bunch of different stingrays, right? We do. We do a lot of work on stingrays. We have for about 20, 22 years. So... You know, they're, they're very abundant species in Southern California, largely due to the loss of all the big predators for the last 50 years. Mm. And their numbers have gone up. Plus, they're probably, they're probably beneficiaries of climate change, the current climate change scenario. Hmm. They're, they're, they're kind of one of those subtropical offshoots. So their, their northern range is, is about Southern California. So as oceans continue to warm, you know, the, those populations are getting pushed out of more tropical areas and driven into more warm temperate areas, which is probably the, the heart of their range. So that probably just means our numbers are going to keep going up. <laughs> You're just going to keep seeing more and more of them. It probably. And they're, they're probably the number one marine life that, that injure people the most in Southern California. Oh, shoot. I didn't realize that. 
I was looking through some of your research and I saw that some of it was focused on how to mitigate those hazards from stingrays. Yeah, because it's a it's an issue. So, um, you know, while records historically weren't very good, California, Southern California in particular, accounted probably for over 50, 60 percent of all stingray related injuries in the entire U.S. What? So um, thousands of people every year are injured. And what we've seen probably in the last 10 years is that there's probably even uh, that number is going up. No, so lifeguards right. are now keeping records and on a, on a busy weekend, a hundred people could be injured by stingrays. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So a lot of it is affected by human behavior. It's affected by weather and of course, stingray behavior. And we've learned a lot about the stingray behavior. So we know when they're going to be in closest to shore, when people will interact with them. So that's what we've learned from our telemetry studies, the ecology studies, understanding what, what drives their movements. And then of course, you know, believe it or not, we know less about human behavior. So, um, <laughs> you know, we now know that under the right surf conditions, the right weather conditions and the right time of the week, more people will go to the beach. And the more people you put in the water there who aren't stingray savvy, the more likely they're going to get injured. During certain times of year, we get so many stingrays in close to shore that you can't see sand. No way. They're, they're piled up on top of each other like a carpet. <sighs> And you cannot see the sand. So our estimates for one location that we're working were probably 16,000 rays would occupy an area maybe the size of a football field or half a football field. Oh, my God. That's so dense. Is that because they're trying to mate or something? No, not necessarily. We think they're, they're looking for appropriate conditions um, because they'll come in and rest on the seafloor. Then they'll forage. They'll move around a bit to forage. Um, but they're also, you know, benthic foragers. So they're doing a lot of feeding in areas where, you know, if you have the right nutrient conditions, you have a lot of benthic fauna, that would be a good place for them to hang out. And a lot of them, you know, in, in Mexico where they occur, it also in high concentrations, they use lagoons and bays and things like that. And in Southern California, we got rid, we filled most of ours in, they got turned into marinas. So a lot of the best stingray habitat has been lost in Southern California. And now they use beach habitat, which is, of course, puts them in close proximity with people. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But I guess we are the ones that took their habitat away from them. So uh, pretty much. And habitat wise, you know, there are some places that are better than others. And that's going to be the places that are going to have these really high densities of race. So we know that now we're working hard to educate lifeguards and the public about that so that they can predict when those are going to be highest. Right, right. And is there a particular stingray species that you're working with, or is it just kind of whatever is abundant and available at the time? Well, the most abundant uh, by biomass is Eurobatis halari. So it's the round stingray. And that, that's the one that's been here for many, many years. It's now probably one of the best studied stingrays in the world. So it, it's the most abundant. And then we also have bat rays, which are also fairly abundant. They get much larger. They're far more mobile. And then we also have butterfly rays and we have diamond rays. They're less abundant. So by far the round stingray along coastal areas is the most common stingray you're going to find basically from Baja all the way up to Southern California. Oh, okay. And about how big do they get? About the size of a dinner plate. Ah, so pretty small for a stingray, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. so small. That's so cute. 
And so what kind of research have y'all done on the round stingray? Everything. We've done everything. We've done metabolism. We've done aging growth. We've done reproduction. We've done movements. We've done spine regeneration. Um, we've done contaminant loading. We've done all of it. Yeah, really? Wow, there's nothing left to learn about that stingray. <laughs> and is the reason y'all have done so much research on this round stingray because it's so abundant? Like, is it a good representative for other less abundant stingray species? Well, I, I'm not sure it's a good representative, but it's a, it's a good model species because of its abundance. It's, it, they're super common along the coast. They're easy to keep in captivity. They're small, so, so they're easy to collect. And we can go out in a beach sand and get 300 in a single tow. So if you want to go out and do a lot of sampling, it's a great species to work on. And because they do so well in captivity, we've been able to keep animals in captivity for years. And a number of the public aquaria have actually got them to breed in captivity. So in, in many ways, this makes them a really a good model species to studying many of the life history characteristics and physiology aspects that we don't know about most stingrays in the world, but we could use these at least as some model. Model species are just like he said. They're abundant, they're easy to catch, they're easy to keep in captivity, they're hardy, and that all makes them easy to study. So a model organism is an organism that can be extensively studied to understand different biological phenomena. So this round stingray, there's plenty of it, it's easy to study, so it works well to understand how stingrays act in general, but it's not necessarily how other species behave or operate exactly. And I did my honors project on what was called a model species. It was a minnow scientifically named Fungulus heteroclitus. It's also known as the mud minnow or the mummy chog. I was looking at its behavior to get an idea of how fish react to a predator. And that was because they're abundant, they're easy to catch, they're easy to keep in captivity, they're really hardy, and they were small so I didn't need big tanks for them. But so then that idea of what their behavior was like could be a model for how other species behave in the presence of a predator. And a lab rat is essentially a model organism for mammalian behavior and operation. So that's a good way to think about it too. The other cool thing about them is typically we think of elasrobranchs as having long gestation periods, right? So they have, you know, this long gestation period around stingrays, three, four months. That's it. It's probably one of the shortest gestations that we know of. Yeah. Oh, that's it. So especially in captivity, that makes this a good model organism to use. Exactly. You can get a lot of generations. So they probably reach maturity at around um, four or five years and then um, might live to be 11 or 12 based on some of our aging growth data. So, you know, it's, it's a high turnover elasmobranch and there aren't very many like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never heard of a high turnover elasmobranch. I've heard of only them having like gestation periods of over a year and stuff like that, which is just crazy long. And in one of the papers that I was looking at, I saw that female round stingrays can give birth to multiple pups at a time, but your study found that 90% of the litters had pups that were from different fathers. How does that work? How does the, how does the female know what sperm to choose to give to which egg and all of that? How does that reproductive mechanism work? Yeah. So, you know, they, they have a very interesting reproductive system 
right? So during breeding season, which in Southern California starts around March and the same all the way through the range in Baja, they'll form these clusters. They come in close to shore, males and females are together in the same place. Um, males, of course, are, you know, they're primed to reproduce and, and Tim Trichus, who's, who's a sensory biologist, has done a lot of work in his career looking at how males use their electroreceptors to locate buried females to mate with them. And what happens is testosterone, the upregulation of testosterone during breeding season, actually tweaks up their electroreceptors and increases their sensitivity huh. so they can detect females from a greater distance. Wow. So what happens is during mating season, males you know, will basically gang up on females. They'll mate with her. Um, females will mate with more than one male. And then usually by the end of mating season, when females are like, okay, we've had enough, they'll start to pile up on top of each other and they'll create these big all-female mounds. And when any males come over and try to mate with them, you can tell because their perimeters of their pectoral fins are all chewed up for males grabbing them, which they need to do in order to mate. The females will just spine the crap out of the males. Oh my God. So they're like, we're done. <laughs> no more breeding. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's kind of the signal of breeding season is over. And then what happens is probably the first males that mate with that female, their sperm is going to move the furthest up towards the shell gland, which is probably where fertilization is occurring. And then subsequent male sperm will move up behind it and so on and so on. So what happens is you end up with this kind of a bulk of the sperm mixed from these various males that the females have mated with during that breeding season. And when the female starts to ovulate, that's when fertilization is occurring, right? So it was that study that probably indicated, you know, just like with most sharks, behaviorally, there's some selection. People always think, oh, the males are going to say, I'm going to mate with that female. But if that female is bigger than that male, she may go, no. So, and because we've, we've seen females spine the crap out of males when they don't want to mate. What? Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, what that study showed genetically was that females are probably having a lot more say in the mating process than, than we previously thought. We always thought that a big male could, you know, easily you know, subdue a female and mate with her. But it may turn out that females get far more choice in that matter than we ever thought. Elasmites, you and I thought that this method of reproduction was wild, but this paper title is just golden. So it was published in 2017, and the title of the paper is Who's My Daddy? Considerations for the Influence of Sexual Selection on Multiple Paternity in Elasmobranc Mating Systems. I have no words. And I saw another one of your studies on round stingrays that looked at teeth morphology, and it showed that their tooth shape changes during the breeding season. Mm -hmm. How in the world does that work? Yeah, so so that was work previously done um, by Tim Trikas's lab, by Steve Kajera. Um, he did that as part of his master's thesis. And basically, they were looking at the Atlantic stingray. And what happens is, you know, these things are eating crustaceans. They have really molar-like grinding plates, tooth plates. So for the males, in order to mate, that kind of tooth plate is not good for hanging onto a female. It's good for crushing crustaceans. It's not good for grasping a female pectoral fin. Mm. So what they found was, and, and Karen Maruska was another grad student of that, that era. She and Steve found that basically... As the males come into breeding season, that upregulation of testosterone isn't just tweaking up their electroreceptors, but it's also causing their teeth to become more pointed. Crazy. So as new tooth plates are being developed, 
only for males, and this is testosterone driven, the teeth become more pointy during breeding season. So that makes them, enables them to grab a hold of the female. When breeding season's over and testosterone levels start to drop, the tooth morphology comes back to being more flat and rounded like that of female. So we found the exact same thing in round stingrays. And that, that was work done by an undergrad in my lab. Did you hear that? That was work done by an undergrad. Everybody starts at zero at some point. Don't discount yourself because you don't have the qualifications. You have to start at the bottom sometime and you put in the effort to work your way up. Everybody has to learn somehow. That's amazing. That's crazy how testosterone can affect morphology and the physiology of the stingray. Sure, sure, because it's seasonal, right? And those are things that are focused around reproduction. So there's probably these co-evolved physiological things that are, that are being tweaked that enable males to do things that females don't need to. Yeah, that's just wild. Okay, and I do want to get back to your education. How did you end up in Hawaii for your PhD? Yeah, so by the time I was done with my master's, I had an opportunity to go to Hawaii for a uh, basically a fish behavior program. That was a summer program at Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. So um, because I came out of a big behavior lab, I was able to get into that program. And it was there that I heard about Kaneohe Bay, which is where HIMB is located, being a hammerhead shark nursery. So I was really interested in that and how those nurseries work. And could we calculate, you know, how a baby hammerhead pup survives? So during my master's, I became a little disillusioned with behavior. And the reason <laughs> is, is behavior is very plastic. It varies, right? Mm. So it, it's, there's nothing very definitive about it. <laughs> so you would score something at a rank of one to five, and then who's to say your score or rank is, is appropriate, right? So uh, it was too squishy for me, statistically. I wanted something more concrete. So it was then that I began to understand that physiology is something that you can measure something, right? You get a discrete value and physiology drives behavior. So if we understand an animal's physiology, we can better quantify behavior. So I decided for my PhD, I wanted to learn more about physiology. So um, through that summer program, uh, we got to be able to go out and, and as a side project, tag a bunch of hammerhead shark pups and follow them around and see where they go. And that was where I kind of get interested in this concept of, well, how does this bay support 7,000 pups a year? And, and what is the energy needed to support that population? So that, that was when I thought, okay, I'm going to study bioenergetics of these sharks. What's bioenergetics, you ask? Why would I explain it when we have an expert? So bioenergetics is really simple. Think of it as bioeconomics. So if you eat so many calories, you eat so much food a day, some of that energy gets allocated to metabolism. Some of that gets allocated to growth. Some of that gets allocated reproduction and whatever you don't use gets excreted as waste. So think of it like a budget, right? So if you bring in so much money uh, every month and you have to pay rent or else you get kicked out, you have to buy food, you know, you have to pay car insurance, all those things. And then there's some waste, right? There's money that you lose and throw away. And then whatever's left over, you can put in your savings. That savings is used to grow, right? So... The idea here was I was going to measure things like auction consumption rate to begin to understand what their resting, their standard metabolism was, how much energy they used while they were swimming at different speeds. So I could create these budgets 
and then see, okay, if you got a baby hammerhead that's newborn and this thing doesn't know how to feed very well and it's only relegated to eating the most abundant but low quality prey that are worth X number of calories per item, how many of those things do they have to eat a day to break even? Hmm. And if they're going to grow, that means they have to eat more mm -hmm. than just breaking even. So I needed to create that energy budget. That's bioenergetics. So that was that I graduated from, from Cal State Long Beach. And then the next year I started at UH in my PhD program. And I work with Kim Holland, who is kind of at the time a big tuna billfish behavior guy. So he was using telemetry to track those animals. And I worked with him during that summer program to track hammerheads and conned him into thinking that we could, we could do this. <laughs> so that was how I spent the next seven years of my life was in Hawaii catching hammerheads and, and measuring their, their auction consumption rates. And then I built a, an acoustic transmitter that would count their tail beats. Like I built one of the first Fitbits for sharks. Um, and that was, that was an endeavor because I'm not an electrical engineer. So I had to learn how to do that on my own. Oh man, that's crazy. That sounds like a big leap. How'd you go from marine biology to wanting to learn electrical engineering? Yeah, well, so I like tinkering. I certainly didn't have the background or the chops to do the EE. So I, I had to work with some folks that helped me design the circuit, uh, optimize the circuit, then I had to build it. So that that took about a year. And then I had to test it and trial it. And then we actually applied it and tracked six hammerheads with my custom built tailbeat transmitter and then used all the physiology. I built, I built my own swim tunnel respirometer for hammerheads. That was another oh, experience. That's cool. I, I like the hands-on thing. Uh, I like building mm -hmm. things and trying to make something work, even though I might not have all the technical experience to do it, the engineering background. I like tinkering and I was, let's say moderately successful in doing it, but <laughs> I knew when I had to recruit people who were definitely more trained and smarter than me to help me make those things work. Oh, I see. So it was a very collaborative process to learn all that. It was, it was. And in the time I learned a lot about engineering and physics and all those things, but you know, those were goals that I wanted to achieve and I didn't really have the background for it, but I was passionate about it and just made it happen somehow. Yeah. Okay. So like in the words of Jeff Goldblum, Life uh, finds a way. Kind of like that, yeah. So how did you measure the bioenergetics of the hammerhead? And how did you take into account all the variables that could influence your measurements? Sure. Hammerheads are amazing swimmers, right? So they, they think of them like a fighter jet. They're they're high performance. So the, the way their body is designed is designed to minimize drag. When you put the, an animal anything, in a, in a tube or a box and you try to get the flow to move across them like they would if they were in open water, there are going to be all sorts of confounding variables, right? So there's going to be eddies that are created as water's moving through this thing that are going to affect how they swim, which, and if animal is adjusting, if you're constantly adjusting your body position, it's going to cost you more. So I knew that there would be these sorts of challenges and problems. And, and that's something that if I could quantify the cost of those, then I could deduct that from the budget, right? So I, I spent a lot of time learning about fluid dynamics. I spent a lot of time understanding swimming kinematics. And I would compare free swimming sharks in a pond 
with the kinematics of sharks that I measured in my chamber, in my treadmill. So I could say that, you know, probably their kinematics, which th accounts for things like tailbeat frequency, tailbeat amplitude, and velocity, you know, 10% of that is, is an artifact of them swimming in this flume as opposed to in an open situation. So I could correct my numbers to a certain extent, right? So that, that, that's something that, you know, as a scientist, you got to think about. You know, you're trying to measure one thing, but there are always going to be these artifacts that you need to account for. Mm -hmm. So um, it was great training for me because it forced me to look at things that I didn't think about before and begin to realize how those could impact the animal and my interpretation of what the animal was doing. So like putting a transmitter on an animal, that has an impact, right? We're taking a fighter jet and we're going to stick something on it that it doesn't normally have. Its fuel consumption is going to go up. It's not going to be as maneuverable before and it may not like it. So it's going to change its gait. It's going to change how it swims and it's going to increase its costs. I need to calibrate that. I need to calculate that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are all things that I did as part of my dissertation that I had to do to be confident in the data that I got. That's so interesting. That's just like one big long math problem that exactly. you just have to subtract out the variables. Yeah, if you know what those variables are. So that's the problem, right? So every time I thought I had all the variables down, I would realize that I was missing some. <laughs> it just keeps you on your toes and makes you think one step ahead. Exactly. And it was great training for me because it really helped me once I was a professor and I was writing grants on my own because as a student, learning to see your way all the way around a problem to the end result, like what you think you'll get at the design of a study is really what will make you successful as a scientist. Mm. So the shot, the old shotgun approach where you go, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this <laughs> experiment. And I'm going to test this. It's never just that. It's never. So it, it, there are all these variables and being able to see your way all the way around this problem and try to account for all those variables in your design means your chances of coming to the right conclusion at the end of your study have gone up significantly. But if you don't think about those things, your probability of failure is actually very high. <laughs> Did you hear that? Okay, follow me real quick. So he said, in order to succeed, you need to fail. But if you try to succeed without failing, you end up failing. Now that just makes my brain hurt. Now to me, that's one of the most aggravating things about the school system. Through the grading, it seems like we're forced to think about only succeeding and not learning through our failures. If we get a bad grade, we think we're done for or we're not good enough and that we have to strive for that A, that perfection, or else we don't learn anything. But with hands-on things, you're encouraged to fail. If you don't fail, you don't learn. So that's where I think it's so backwards with all the grades saying you have to do good on this. You can't fail or else you don't learn. Does that make sense to anyone else? Because in the semester that I did my honors project, where it was all hands-on work, I learned the most because I screwed up. But in my classes, it was just memorize this, memorize that. It wasn't really that much about learning. It was just about getting through to the end. But the hands-on stuff is what sticks with me. That's what frustrates me about school. Who can I talk to about this besides my therapist? 
Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I found when I was doing my honors project is, oh, I couldn't see the full picture. I couldn't see around all those problems. So, so I had my question and I had what I thought was an answer. And so I just ran with it. I kept going and, and then it would bust. Yep. And I was just like, oh, come on. And I bet your advisors let you do it. And why do you think that is? I assume they did it so I could learn how to approach a problem and also learn that science isn't always just a straightforward path. Well, so, uh, and I'm sure I do this with my students all the time, right? They will go, okay, this is what I want to do. And I'll sit there and I'll nod and go, okay. <laughs> 30 years of experience means I could probably see many of the pitfalls, right? Yeah. But I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> and the reason is you will learn more from your failures than you will from your successes. You won't even know what a success is, right? But you will definitely know what a failure is, right? That's the truth. <laughs> you will make the greatest leaps in, in being trained as a scientist from your failures. So if we as advisors or faculty told you what to do every time, you, you would not learn nearly as much. So while you might see that strange grin on your advisor's face, like, <laughs> sure, yeah, go ahead. Give that a try. Let me know how that goes. You should be thinking they know they know this is not going to work or they know there's going to be problems like here, here and here. But they're not going to tell you that because they want to see you make those big leaps in, in your learning. Right. Oh, my God. I know exactly what you're talking about. I knew that grin so well, it's not even funny. I just remember when they would make that face, like like wanting to shake them and be like, you know the answer, you're just not telling me. Why won't you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know, I've seen that look too, right? But at the end of the day, you know, they come back and they go, wow, you know, I really learned more um, because you let me screw up. And, um, you know, it's hard because a lot of times, it, it literally, we could give you one comment and that would be enough for you to go, oh, okay, I know what to do now. But uh, you just wouldn't learn as much. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. You just learn so much through your failures. It's frustrating. Oh my God, as frustrating as it is, you just learn so much more. And now that you've got so much experience, do you find that it's easier to see your way around a problem and that you can account for all those variables and that you can see them ahead of time, at least a lot better than earlier in your career? Absolutely. So remember, I, I was in school for 14 years. Oh, sweet Jesus. Yeah, 14 years. My family thought I was a professional student. So and, and it was really during those 14 years that that helped me. Um, you know, I, many of my colleagues are far smarter than I am, right? I just was willing to work and it might've taken me longer than most people, but at the end of the day, I felt a lot more confident in my abilities because of those challenges. And I just had to have the, the fortitude <laughs> to push through all the failures, right? And say, okay, uh, back to the drawing board. All right, I'm going to try this. And, um, you know, I'm sure other people could have done it much faster than I. Um, but for me, that was the time it took. And at the end of the day, I came out and I had a faculty position before I finished my PhD. And I didn't have to do a postdoc. So I think that time paid off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If securing a faculty position before finishing your PhD isn't evidence that that paid off, 
I don't know what is, to be honest. <laughs> Alright, now I've just got a question that's been burning in the back of my mind for so long. Hammerhead shark suntan? What? What? I don't even know where to start. Let's just start with who, what, where, when, why. How did you discover that hammerhead suntan? Yeah, so I use that as an example in many of my classes um, for students, particularly graduate students, about, you know, you, you become so focused with your research and in that process that you no longer pay attention to things that are happening around you that could be interesting or unique. So my wife, who was also a grad student at the time, was working on the effects of UV light in corals. And she would help me go collect hammerheads that we'd put in this pond to measure their swimming kinematics as a calibration for what was happening in the flume. So these young hammerheads, when you collect them, are basically beige, you know, they're the color of concrete, right? And we would put them in the shallow uh, saltwater pond at HIMB where the water's only a meter or two deep and it's white coral sand. So we put the sharks in there, we'd let them free swim around. I'd have a camera above them so I could film them swimming. And then after a month, I would have to go get new individuals to increase my sample size, right? Okay, so I would go collect some new sharks, put them in the pond, and then we would see them swimming around with the sharks that had been there for a month. And one day we both looked at each other and said, the sharks that have been here are black. <laughs> but the new ones we're putting in are beige. Hmm. What the hell? <laughs> and remember, they're over a white coral sand. They stand out like a sore thumb, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very stark. Certainly not Crypsis, right? Mm-hmm. So we're joking, jokingly said to each other, ah, you know, maybe they're suntanning. <laughs> so it just so happens that summer, there was a big summer program on the effects of UV on, on the marine environment. So there were all these experts from all over the world that studied the effects of UV. No way. And we'd drag them out to the pond and we'd show them the sharks and we'd say, hey, you think those sharks are suntanning? Is that possible? And they would look at us like, are you crazy? <laughs> the only animal that's known to suntan are humans. So we were like, okay, um, we'll design an experiment to see if they're suntanning. So that's what we did. We, we basically got these films of plastic that filter out various wavelengths of light. And we would suture them to their pectoral fins, right? Put them in the pond, let them swim around. I would measure their kinematics at the same time, right? And then after a month, we would take off the film. And basically what we found was like, just like a watch on your wrist, the pieces of plastic that blocked UV basically prevented melanization underneath that skin. Hmm. So, and then we had controls, you know, nothing. So we could then take a hole puncher and we could take a punch out of the fin. So, and then we could extract the melanin and we could quantify because it's a unified piece of diameter of skin and quantify how much melanin they produced. What? So basically what we were able to experimentally demonstrate was that only the patches of skin that are directly exposed to UV Mm -hmm. increase their melanin production, which is a form of morphological color change. So fish can physiologically color change. They can move melanin up and down throughout those cells, right? Through their melanophores or their chromatophores. Um, And they could do that rapidly, right? But this was they were producing more melanin. Hmm. And after the sharks had been exposed to those UV levels for several weeks to months, when you would handle them, they would produce so much melanin that it would come off in the mucus on your hands. Oh, that's crazy. So they're able to increase their melanin concentration by 38%, which in humans, 
not even close. Even people that tan really deeply can't do that. So the question was, why? Why do they have this ability? So then we started looking in the literature and, you know, while there wasn't a lot of data on cancers in sharks, mainly because when animals get sick and die, they sink. So you never find sicker, you know, injured animals like that. Um, basically, the incidence of skin-related cancers in sharks compared to other teleos fishes was significantly lower. Hmm. So that was when we might have started to try to put two and two together. Maybe the reason for this intense melanization was to protect their DNA from protein dimer production, which is the precursor to skin cancers. And maybe that is evolutionarily how they defend against that living in tropical waters. So I was ready to do a postdoc on that because, you know, that was something that nobody else had ever looked at. And then I got a faculty position. So why do a postdoc when you have a job? <laughs> so uh, I never followed up on it. And I kind of kicking myself. I wish I had because it was an intriguing line of research. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. There really hasn't been much work done. There's been some work done on some stingrays, which turns out a lot of different elastobranchs, probably suntan. It's not just hammerheads. But nobody's really followed up on that. And I, I find that that was an accident, right? <laughs> so I always use that as an example. We got the cover of Nature oh uh, with that article, which had we not been paying attention, had we not really looked into it, we would have assumed that that was common. Mm -hmm. Just common knowledge that, oh, well, that must, you know, people must already know that. So I always tell my students, Always keep your eye open for those things and, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, pick up a side project because some, sometimes it pays off. Oh, I love a good side project. That's nuts how an accident and a coincidence of those UV researchers being there led to you and your wife being on the cover of Nature. That's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, and a lot of work. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, because we had to demonstrate that it worked on top of all my other dissertation research and her dissertation research. But it was it was really a fun side project. That's just so amazing. That I I just don't have words to describe that. That's so cool. And why do they do that? Why how is that beneficial? Because if they're on white coral sand, I would think that sun tanning would be detrimental to their camouflage. Oh, so it turns out it has nothing to do with the white coral sand. It has to do with the amount of UV that penetrates the water. Oh. So when, they, when they're when they living in the bottom of the bay, Kaneohe Bay is very murky. So when they're at the bottom, virtually no UV penetrates to that depth due to attenuation. But in the upper surface waters where it's clear, a lot of UV can penetrate. So, you know, hammerheads are typically found in tropical, subtropical conditions where water clarity is much greater where UV penetrates deeper. So as pups, the safest place for them to be is in a murky bay so they can avoid getting eaten by bigger things, right? But then as they get bigger, then they can move into clear water, but they're going to get exposed to UV. So that is a physiological evolved tool that probably helps reduce DNA damage from UV exposure. Oh, okay. And does this only happen with the juveniles or does it also happen with adults? So we've seen adult hammerheads that are dark and some that are lighter. Um, again, remember, they can physiologically change color and they can morphologically change color. We don't know whether the ones that we see that are darker have spent more time in surface waters and, and greater UV exposure or whether they are simply 
physiologically moving pigment. So in a lot of public aquaria, they'll have outdoor exhibits with various types of sharks and rays. And one of the, one of the things the aquarists note is the ones that are on outdoor exhibits get significantly darker over time. And then if they move them to indoor exhibits, they're still darker than all the individuals that have only been indoors. And just like people, we lose our tan over time. You start getting rid of some of that melanin, right? And pretty soon you get back to a constitutive level. So again, in, in some cases, it's probably maladaptive, right? So if we had a hammerhead pup that was in shallow water and that hammerhead pup is now swimming over shallow coral sand, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb, which means its chances of being detected by a predator are greater. Mm -hmm. So it's a trade-off. Is it better to hide in murky water where your UV exposure is low and you stay appropriate color? But if you're living in a, in an environment that's high UV exposure, getting a little bit darker if you're bigger still might not pose as great a risk as the damage from the sun, which animal isn't controlling. Animal might not even know it's getting darker, right? It's physiologically doing that. Um, that has evolved as a way of protecting them. Oh, I see. It's like making its own sunscreen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that hammerhead sharks are really sensitive to being handled. Like, I've heard stories of people catching and releasing hammerhead sharks, but they don't even survive the release, like most sharks can. Is that a myth that all hammerheads are hypersensitive to being handled? Because, I mean, you obviously had to handle a lot for your research. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, they are very sensitive. And that's something that we've learned about their physiology. So just like a fighter jet, you know, you can take an old beat up, you know, prop plane, you know, like a crop plane. Those things get beat up all the time. They're not fast. They're not high performance. They're very stable and they can take a beating. Mm -hmm. Hammerheads are fighter jets. Those things cannot take a beating. They're very sensitive they're very maneuverable, they're high performance, and that, that includes their physiology. So one of the things I learned early on in my research was that they were, their aerobic capacity is very sensitive. So they swim in high, usually high oxygenated waters. Their gill perfusion rates are very high. And if you stress an animal out so that it builds up lactic acid in, in its muscle, if that animal is prevented from swimming for more than 10 minutes, it will begin to tetanize, which means all its muscles will begin to tense up. So imagine go, being a couch potato for a month and then someone makes you run a marathon. Ooh. Think about how your body <laughs> would feel after that marathon. All your muscles begin to seize up because of all that lactic acid buildup, right? Mm -hmm. They simply, if they're not, if their heart isn't beating and their muscles aren't moving, swimming, they cannot wash that lactic acid out. Mm. And then that causes cell death. So I found that if I prevented a, a baby hammerhead from swimming for more than 10 minutes, I could not revive them. So imagine one gets caught in a long line and it's swimming around, but it can't swim fast enough. And eventually it's just hanging from the long line. Start the stopwatch because after 10 minutes, it's going to die. Lactic acid. Oh, you devil you. So lactic acid is essential to the body. It plays an important role in making sure that cells, tissues, and organs work correctly, and it's got three main uses throughout the body. It's a major energy source for mitochondria, it's a precursor for producing glucose, and it's a signaling molecule. 
So you're more confused? Okay, perfect. So am I. Lactic acid is just really an important fuel source for muscles during exercise, especially those in the heart. But sometimes lactic acidosis can occur when the body produces too much lactic acid and it can't process it or remove it quickly enough. So the blood pH drops into the acidic region rather than its normal alkaline or basic resting spot. And just as a reference, water is perfectly neutral at 7.0 on the pH scale, and anything between 7 and 14 is basic, like soap or detergent, and then anything from 7 to 0 is acidic on the pH scale. So like orange juice or lemon juice. Or too much lactic acid. And so too much lactic acid or acidic blood can cause heart failure, liver damage and disease, and kidney disease and failure. And I got this all from medical news today for humans, but it sounds like it applies to all animals. Particularly hammerheads, like Dr. Lowe said, are very susceptible to lactic acidosis if kept from moving. But we compare that with a tiger shark, and the tiger shark can be wrapped up in a big ball, hanging in a big ball for hours like that. And you mm. unravel them and off they swim. Wow. So very different performance. So, you know, tiger sharks are the crop duster planes that can take anything. They're not very maneuverable. They're not very fast. They're tankers, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you've got the fighter jets. So physiologically, hammerheads, that's just kind of the way they evolve based on the environments that they live in. And that's why fisheries-wise, they have not fared well. That's wild how species-dependent it is. Mm -hmm. But I guess it makes sense evolutionarily that their environment plays a factor into how they evolve. Okay, and last few questions. What excites you about the future? What motivates you to get out of bed every day with a smile on your face, ready to do what you do? Well, I would say recovery of white sharks and many of our coastal species in U.S. waters because of better management, that excites me, right? We hear bad news about the environment all the time. We hear about shark populations being decimated globally, right? But what we're not talking about is recovery of shark populations in certain places. And we should be focusing on how did that work and why are they coming back? And we should be lauding that conservation success. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't, why will people care? Absolutely. If it's all bad, then people are going to stop caring. We have to show and we have to brag about our successes, right? Recovery of white sharks in many places is something to brag about. We put in place conservation, populations are coming back. That's good news. And we know how and we know why. So that gives me hope. 20, 25 years ago, I really feared that there would be an entire generation of Americans that would go into the ocean and never get to see a shark in the wild. Hmm. I really worried about that. And now today, I am pleased to say that there are many places you can go in the ocean and you could be snorkeling or swimming and you'll get to see a shark. And that's, that's good. That's good. I'm never planning on crying during this podcast, but man, if that doesn't almost bring you to tears, that's freaking poetic. But even though Dr. Lowe has accomplished almost everything in the world of shark science, I asked him what his future goals are in the world of marine science. Listen up. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I've spent my life doing science and training students, which has been great. I love what I do. But the new thing that I'm really passionate about is science communication. I think as scientists, we've made a, a big mistake 
10, 20, 30 years ago, in that we relied other people to communicate our science, no matter how complex and, and complicated or even controversial it may be. Um, that was a mistake. We need to start training the next generation to be able to articulate what we do, regardless of how complicated or sophisticated it may be, to the public. Because if they can't understand and appreciate it, then we're going to run into a problem like, why are vaccines necessary? So, so we've, we are responsible in fixing this problem. And it's not hard. Sci we train scientists to t talk to other scientists, but we also have to train them how to talk to their grandma and how to explain to her, who isn't a scientist, why we're doing what we're doing and why it's important for her. Everybody can do that. And it just takes practice. So this is something I'm, I'm passionate about, you know, teaching my students and others how to drop the jargon. Can I find another way of explaining what I'm doing in a, in a relatable way that anybody else can understand without having to be a scientist and know all the words in our technology? So, and you get, and it's hard because there's a lot of nuance to it. And there's some people that are really good at it. And there's some people that just need a little practice. Mm. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you waking up at such an ungodly hour to talk with me about sharks and rays and science in general. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work, Sam. We need it more. So that was the intelligent and passionate Dr. Chris Lowe. And you can find him and the California State University Long Beach Shark Lab on Instagram and Twitter at CSULB Shark Lab. And the Shark Lab website is csulb.edu slash sharklab. You should definitely go check out that website because it not only has all the information about research they've done, but it also provides great info on beach safety as related to sharks and stingrays. It's really cool. Go check it out. So that's csulb.edu slash sharklab. And you can support me and my efforts to bring wonderful people like Dr. Lowe on this podcast for all of us to enjoy and learn from by becoming a Patreon donor at patreon.com slash elasmospod. I really can't overstate how much it means to me that you support this podcast. I love doing this and you're making my dreams come true through it. And again, I'm working on some extra content for you Patreon donors out there as regular thank yous for your support. So again, that's patreon.com slash elasmospod. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast and send your rating and review to me at elasmospod at gmail.com to try to win a prize from our episode one guests. Hint, go back and listen if you haven't. It's really good. And you can share this podcast on social media for two extra entries into the drawing if you tag us. And you can find this podcast on Instagram and Twitter at elasmospod. And our Facebook page is called The Elasmos Podcast, A Shark's Universe. Our website, elasmospod.com, is professionally created by the one and only Paul McNeely. And don't forget to send in your diving, snorkeling, or just marine adventure stories to elasmospod at gmail.com for a possible listener's episode so that you can have your story told on this podcast and get a nice shout out. And I'm also trying to start up a YouTube channel, possibly, just as another outlet for all this information, so be on the lookout for that. And the theme song is wonderfully and masterfully created and performed by Connor Blake and Wes McNeely. And you can find Wes on Instagram at wes.mcneely1 and on YouTube at Wes McNeely. I'm also on Instagram at smcneely4335. And at last, my weekly update. So I'm visiting this little town in North Carolina called Beaufort. And it's just on the East Coast, right in the middle of the coastline. 
It's really pretty. It's like a miniature version of Charleston, but it's really historic. It's so historic that Blackbeard actually lived here. Blackbeard the pirate. That's who we're talking about. And I found his house the other day. It's called the Hammock House. And it's a pretty regular looking historic house. But it was so cool. And there were people living in it too. There were like kayaks and canoes out front. And cars in the driveway. How cool would that be to live in Blackbeard's old house? I feel like that'd be hella haunted. Are we saying hella again? Let's say hella again. But I would love to go on a ghost tour of that house. Because man, that'd be wild to see Blackbeard's ghost. Or any kind of hauntings from that. I mean the house was built in like. I think it said 1709, and Blackbeard did some crazy shit, so who knows what's going on in there. We should find out. Let's do a paranormal investigation. After we dive with all the cool sharks right off our coastline here at Beaufort. Okay, thanks for listening, Lasmites. Have a fantastic week, and come back next week for another thriller of an episode. This is the Lasmos Podcast. Later, skaters. Later, skaters.